Mark, how's everybody doing? Good, happy Father's Day. Dad's out there. Hope you're enjoying your day. I enjoyed it yesterday. Got to shoot my bow and eat like 17 pieces of French toast, so thank you to my family. It was wonderful. Um, today, we are going to look at an extremely long passage. Why is there a communion up here? That's strange. That's really weird. Extremely long passage. And I'm going to do my best to kind of bring it home to you. But before we do, we had something happen this last week that we as a church want to just talk about. Uh, you guys saw the news, South Carolina, obviously what happened there, a tragedy. Nine people lost their lives at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, a long name full of godly people there praying and doing a Bible study. And obviously you heard what happened. Someone came in and uh, because of hate and hate alone killed them all. Here's what we want to do. They had their first service back here this Sunday, which is just crazy to think of coming to a place where that just happened. And here were some of the things the pastor who got up and spoke said. He said this, which is scripture. The gates of hell, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, which is a true statement. And then he said some very interesting just insight into the heart of a Christian and the heart of a Christian going through this. He said, lots of people thought we were going to respond by riots or pickets or demonstrations. But lots of people out there don't know our daddy. He said, our daddy's a daddy of love. He said, so we're going to love. And then he said this, we still believe that prayer does stuff. We still believe that prayer moves God. So that's, that's what he led his people in, a, a, a tragedy that most of us will never experience on that scale at all. And he said, nothing Satan can ever do in this world will stop the church. Our daddy loves us, and we love because we love our daddy. And prayer actually does stuff. So we're going to pray for these folks. We have, actually have a picture of the victims here we'll put up. We're just going to pray. And I'm going to let you just pray on your own. Here's how Jesus told his disciples to pray. They came and asked, how do I pray? I mean, prayer is a weird thing. You're talking to an invisible God. He basically said, the Our Father, which starts with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Start by just praising God for who he is in the midst of this circumstance. And then he goes on to say, But your will in heaven, we want it to be done here on earth. So, and then he ends with a very strange, Forgive us as we're forgiven. So those are the three things I want to be thinking through. So in, as you bow your heads in a second here, just praise God for the truth of who you know he is, despite whatever you see going on in this world. He's in control. He's not blind to this. He's compassionate. He's there. He's present. In the midst of that, specifically pray for Charleston, the community, um, the people of the church, the family members, the brothers, sisters, moms, dads, everyone affected, and then just pray for your own heart for forgiveness and to be able to seek forgiveness as Christ has forgiven us. So I'm just going to give us all two to three minutes to pray. Go to God on behalf of Charleston and that church there, and then I'll close us here in a second. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, as I sit here in this silent room, as a person who likes to try to fix stuff, it's crazy to think that stopping being quiet and talking to you really is the best thing we can be doing. God, you listen to the prayers of your people. You act on behalf of your people. You answer prayers of your children. And God, our brothers and sisters in South Carolina need you right now. They need you in a special way. They need your proximity. They need your presence. They need you there with them as they think through and feel their way through this tragedy and then try to figure out life on the, on the other side of this thing, God. 
we pray for peace and healing there. We pray for just the, the racial undertones of all this, and we pray for just reconciliation, God, in a place that there's still remnants of slavery and all the black eyes of this country, God, right there, very close to this church, God. Be with that community. Be with the church leaders, the Christian leaders, the Christian families, Lord, as they seek your, your hope and your peace in this time. And then be a light on a hill for the people trying to make sense of all this, God. We love you. We know that you hear us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Keep praying for that. It's interesting. My kids start in school, so I'm just really starting to talk through race and diversity a lot. And this hits home. And it's just, dads, it's a good opportunity to shepherd and just talk through. The world is broken. And Jesus really is our only hope, and this is a chance to speak into that, so pray that you do. For now, though, um, we are in Mark. We will be in Mark until about Thanksgiving. We're heading towards the middle of the end of the first section of Mark. So just to recap, Mark is a gospel. Mark is writing the story of Jesus. He's writing it through a particular lens. And here's how Mark begins, and here's the first words Jesus says as he comes on the scene. Repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom of God at his hand. And this whole book of Mark is filling in the gaps of that story. Repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. In this first section, which ends here in a couple weeks, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? is really the first half, the, the theme over this first eight chapters is who is Jesus? And Jesus is showing that he is the Messiah. He is the king. That means anointed one. He is the chosen one of God. He is God come in the flesh to fix the world. And this particular, we've got four stories here to cover. So let me just tell you straight out of the gate what we're going to do, and hopefully I can do a decent job of teaching this. There are three stories of how Jesus interacts in a Gentile land, so non-Jewish land, and then there's a warning Jesus gives to his disciples at the end of this, looking back on what he just did. So here's what we're going to do. The topic today, the idea is grace. Just raise your hand, Christian, if you've ever heard the word grace. Okay, we've heard this a million times. You can even give the good church answer. Grace is unmerited favor, right? That's what we say. It's God's goodness to somebody who doesn't deserve it. We have a, a word definition in our head. Some of us have an experience with God because of his grace, but here's the reality. Humans balk at the idea of grace. I'm reading a book right now called Gilead. I'm just pulled up here. There's a, it's, about a, it's a fiction book, but it's about a pastor who's a little older, and he has a really young kid, and he's actually dying. He has a disease, so he's kind of journaling his life and his thoughts out so that his son has something to remember him by. And there's just an interesting little tidbit he wrote in one of his letters to his dad. He says, here's something I've thought about every day for my whole adult life, this truth, that there is an absolute disjunction gap between our father's love and our deserving." Christian would all agree, amen, good church people would say, that's right. And then he says this, still, when I see the same disjunction, this gap between human parents and children, it always irritates me. What's he saying? I think about grace every day. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I sing it. I preach it. I read it. I do everything I can with grace as an intellectual thought. But when I see it in action... In this case, with a parent and some little turd kid who doesn't deserve it, it just irritates me. 
And that's the human experience. We fight against grace. God coming down, doing everything possible for us, and we have nothing to show him where he could say, the reason I acted on your behalf is because what you brought me. We love to sing about it, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, but in reality, that irks us. Because who does it take out of the equation? Me. It takes my goodness, my great fatherly way about me out of the equation. God's grace is this, unmerited favor. What does that look like? That's what I hope to do today. I'm just going to look at these three stories through the lens of grace. And I hope we see that Jesus' grace far exceeds our expectations in every way. There's three things I, I see in these stories. Don't go to slides yet, but the first one is that Jesus' grace goes further than any of us expect. Jesus' grace is more personal than any of us expect. And Jesus' grace is more abundant than any of us expect. We know grace. We can define grace. We can preach grace. We can have a VBS about grace. And yet we leave here and we see somebody who's getting something they don't deserve and it rubs us wrong because we want to earn our way to God, whatever it is. Grace is the antithesis to the normal way the human heart functions. And what we're seeing here is Jesus is walking along, just at the stage with his disciples. He has decided to take a little break, so he's leaving the Jewish land and he's walking a hundred or so miles to a Gentile land, and all of these stories happen in the Gentile land, the non-holy land, the unclean land, the land with the people distant from God, with pagan worship and all that. Jesus is now going to interact in not God's land according to Jewish heritage, and we're going to see just pictures of Jesus and his grace to people who don't deserve it. And then we're going to end with a little warning he gives to his disciples, and by extension, the Christians in the room, about this idea of grace. Everybody can say it. Everybody can believe it here. When you experience, it's a whole different ballgame. It rubs you the wrong way because we think we're something special. I'm the king of thinking I'm something special. I really do. It's Father's Day, and to be honest, I'm probably one of the top five fathers in this room. I just think I'm... <laughs> we laugh, but like as we really just get honest with our hearts, we just think we bring more to the table than we do. Grace says we bring nothing, and Jesus covers it all. So let's look at these three stories. The first one is the one with the woman there. It's got a weird little section there that we'll cover later. But the first one is Jesus' grace goes further than anyone expects. Verse 24 there, let's read this. Your title there should say Syrophoenician. You all know what that is. It's easy. We, we remember those Syrophoenician classes we took. Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So now he's left Jewish land. He's up north in this area. Syrophoenicia is just a Roman province. These two, Syria and Phoenix, came together and they just called it. So it's like Gilbert, Queen Creek. Gilbert Creek came together and this is now where this woman is. And Jesus is there trying to take a rest. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was there very explicit about who she was. She was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by mirth. And what was she there to do? She was there to beg him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, this is just weird for our American ears, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may, 
Go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Matthew covers the same exact story and he says this, your faith has made you well. So in this moment, she also gets saved. Her daughter's back at home and her daughter gets cured of her disease. What do I want just, if we have a definition of grace, how do we color this picture a little bit? Here's what we see in this. Jesus' grace goes further than any of us expect. Those Jews who are following around, 12 disciples are Jewish. Most of the people following them are Jewish. They know that God spoke to Abraham, and Abraham created this religion, this Jewish Hebrew religion, that, that he promised a Messiah in the Old Testament, and there was going to be a Messiah, and it was probably this guy we're following around now, Jesus. The Jewish nation is the way to get to God. Jewish people got the lockdown on God and a relationship with God. And Jesus moseys out of Jewish land to a pagan land where they have all sort of pagan worship, many gods, prostitution in the name of worship, every sort of sick, evil way to worship God. And he goes there to take a rest, and some woman comes to bother him while he's sitting in a house. And I just want, picture your disciple there. You know the Jewish faith is it. You know Jesus is probably the Messiah. You know this is the way to God. And you're watching Jesus sit down on this couch, and this woman's banging on the door, and you're about to see Jesus interact with someone who we shouldn't interact with. And what do you see? He does exactly what the woman asks, and she is saved in that moment. Now, some of you should have cringed at some of this word, some of this language Jesus used. Verse 27 said, Let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That doesn't sound very gracious to me. What is he saying? We'll come back to this, but let me just give you the the context. Jesus was a Jew. He gathered Jews to show that he is the Messiah. He's about to die on a cross. And when he dies on the cross, the church is going to begin. And those Jewish men and women who are his first followers are going to go now to Gentile lands and bring Christianity to the other ends of the world, Queen Creek being one of them. But the priority in God's plan of redemption starts with the Jews because they had the prophecy, they had the scripture, they had the testaments, they had all this that pointed to Jesus. Jesus simply goes to them first and then by by extension, as he leaves, they're going to go now to Gentiles. So this, this sounds offensive, but it's really just a picture of priority. God is working on the Jews right now. But here's what I gathered from this. Jesus' grace goes further. If you around non-Christians at all, and you're around sinful non-Christians, one of the things a lot of them will say is, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. And here's the reality of Jesus' grace. Jesus' grace, if you're not seen by Mark, he deals with anyone. And he'll go anywhere. There's nothing that creates a boundary between God and man. Except for lack of faith. But he will go anywhere to get people who put their trust in him. He will go further. I mean, just think in your head. Like, who are the people that you think, there's probably no shot they're ever going to end up in this church? I read this tweet the other day. It was very interesting. guy said, do you realize the next Billy Graham is probably a drunken frat boy at this point in his life? The younger people don't know who Billy Graham is. Billy Graham was basically the Christian of America for 40, 50 years. He went and preached the gospel. Thousands and thousands of people got saved. And this guy's saying, let's just think about grace in reality. What does this mean? The person who is going to be the next forerunner of the gospel in this country is probably drunk, sleeping around, whatever it is. What's his point? God's grace is going to go get people no matter where they're at. 
If you're not a Christian and you're in this room, one of the reasons you may not be a Christian because you think the distance between you and God is too far. And we see in the life of Jesus, he keeps extending the boundaries. He keeps pressing out. He keeps going after the marginalized. He keeps going after the dirty. He keeps going after the women who had no rights in this society. He keeps going. His grace goes further. The next Billy Graham is probably drunk somewhere right now. That's a testament to God's grace. That is a Christian thought right there, this idea of grace, that God can go after anyone and bring him into his family. That is amazing. That should give us great hope for people in our life where you think, there's no shot. God goes further. What's this next story show us? Let's read here. Like I said, I got four stories, one message. I was looking at John MacArthur. He preached this whole section in 16 weeks. I'm going to do it in 30 minutes, so follow along. Either I'm really good or really dumb. Verse 31. Verse 31, Jesus heals a deaf man now. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Epatha, that is, be opened. Verse 35, his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. If we're trying to color in the idea of grace and make it more than just a definition that we can give the right answer to, what do I see here? Jesus' grace is far more personal than any of us expect. This man was deaf and he had a speech impediment. Was there American Sign Language back in the day for this man? Answer, no. There was no America. There was no sign language. He was on the outskirts of society. Nobody spent time thinking through, how can we create a language for the marginalized? That didn't happen. So he had no way to communicate. Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, how do I both heal this guy and get on his level? So Jesus basically, in the moment, creates a sign language for him to track with him as he's bringing the grace to his life. Let me read it again. Verse 33, taking him aside from the crowd privately. So I'm about to speak to this guy. Give me some privacy. Verse 33, He put his fingers into his ears after spitting, touched his tongue. So he does this. So you're a deaf guy. Nobody speaks to you because you're, and he's, your ears are broken, right? Yeah. The guy's like, yeah. And then what's he do next? Puts his, uh, spitting, touched his tongue. And he's like, your tongue is broken, right? The guy's like, you guys are like, this is weird. This is called compassion. That's why it's weird to us. We don't, we don't get this. (laughs) We don't get on people's level. We expect them to rise up to our level. Jesus did the exact opposite. And he's saying, it's broken, right? It's broken. And after looking up to heaven, he does a big sigh. (sighs) The guy's watching him. And he's healed. Jesus' grace is far more personal. I have a lot of Muslim friends. And their God is not personal in the least. He hasn't come to earth. He hasn't created a relationship with them. He has one book, one language. The language shouldn't be changed. If it's the true Quran, it's got to stay in that one language. The Bible is now in how many languages? The beginning of the church, Acts 2, Jesus says, hold up. Before this church thing starts, I'm going to show up. My Holy Spirit will be there. Shows up, and what happens? All the languages understand each other. Meaning, God wants to have a relationship with English speakers and Spanish speakers and deaf people and Chinese speakers. Whatever language it is, Jesus wants to go and speak with you. 
Jesus wants a personal relationship. He doesn't, there's, there's no sort of religious kind of boundaries between us and God anymore. It says this of Moses. I want to name my fourth son Moses. My wife hasn't come around to my way of thinking, but <laughs> if I can create four boys, then I should get rights to name the fourth one, I think. <laughs> it says of Moses, this is why I like the name. He walked and talked with God as you talk with a friend. That reality of Moses is not just given to the religious elite. He walked and talked with God as if he was a friend. Jesus wants to walk and talk as if you're friends. His grace is far more personal than we realize. If you're not yet a Christian and you're just wrestling through, thinking through this, know that about Christianity. Go test the other religions. Test the other worldviews. There's always a gap. There's always a vague kind of distance between you and whatever it is that's controlling this. Christianity, you walk and talk with Jesus, God in the flesh, as if he's your friend. That is amazing. And we see it here in the person of Jesus. And we see him display it. No matter what the distance is, whether you can't speak or whatever, he will create the personal relationship. He will do the work. That is his grace. It's amazing. Let's go on to the next story. Verse 8. I mean, chapter 8, verse 1. We see Jesus goes further. His grace is private. It's not a religion thing. It's a relationship thing. And verse 8, let's see what uh, chapter, I keep saying verse 8. There's a big 8 there. Chapter 8, verse 1. Let's read this. 8. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to, to him and said to him, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. So now he's left, he's done this thing, he's walking, and there's 4,000 people following him. If I send them away, hungry to their homes, they will faint on their way. And some of them have come from far away. Jesus sees that they're hungry, they need some food, and there's thousands of them. His disciples answered him, how can one feed these people here with bread in this desolate place? We're in a desert, we've got a loaf of bread. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Verse 5. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. So we have seven loaves for this 4,000-person group. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves. Having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Verse 8 is just great. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, immediately got into the boat, and left with his disciples. What do we see there? Jesus needs nothing to work on your behalf. Jesus needs nothing as far as what you bring to the table. They had how many loaves of bread? Seven. How many people? 4,000. Everybody sit down. Let's feed them all. So the disciples go, get the bread, come, feed everyone. How many fish? We got three minnows. Cool. Go out, feed them. Feed, 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 feed. Come back. What do we have left over? Seven baskets of bread. Now, some of you are skeptical of miracles, and this happened. Because it's in the book that is only full of truth. This happened. And why is it there? To show us, and right there in this moment, his disciples, look, whatever it is you think you don't have enough of, I'm enough. I am way more abundant than you can ever expect. I got this covered. I'm good. I will take care of you, whether it's your hunger or your thirst or your finances or your relationships. I've got this covered. One thing that just 
modern, I don't know when this started, enlightenment, I guess, we've really done a great job of taking all the goodness of this world, all the things we enjoy, all the great gifts of this world, and separating them and not really giving God credit where credit's due. We wake up, I had some toast and some killer eggs. That's God. I woke up in a house with great AC. That's God's grace. I drove here in a car. That's God's grace. I'm in a building now with AC. That's God's grace. We separate marriage. I'm married to a wonderful woman. God's grace. She cooks me chocolate chip cookies. God's grace. Think of all the things you enjoy in life. James says every good and perfect gift is from the Father of lights. He gives generously to all. Those 4,000 people, how many of them were Christians? It doesn't say. But there's Christians and non-Christians and skepticals and God-haters and Pharisees in this group because they're the ones falling around, keep trying to get in a fight with them. People who hate God, people love God, people figuring out God, and he feeds them, and they're satisfied. That's called God's common grace. There is a common grace to this whole world that we don't deserve. We all breathe in air that none of us created, with lungs none of us created, go eat meals that none of us thought of with all these spices that we really enjoy. None of us came up with this idea. That was all God. We're in a marriage where we get to enjoy relations with our spouse. Who thought of that idea? That wasn't any of us. God's goodness is to all. And we see it in this passage. That's his grace. Nobody deserves this. There's a Proverbs that says, the rain falls on the wicked just as it falls on the righteous. Meaning you walk out and there's a great little rainstorm. You're going to have God-haters, people who love Jesus dearly, and people figuring out and God's grace trickles down to us all. That's not how I would run this world if I was God. I'm far too vindictive and trite and like to fight over little things. God says, my rain, my grace, my bread, my provision, my, my grace is for all of you. All of you. Well, let's fast forward to where it gets a little interesting. Here's the fourth thing about God's grace, Jesus' grace, that I just want to end on. Verse 11, let's see this little interaction here. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So the Pharisees are in this group. They just ate bread. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. We're going to read another section here, but here's what this, this last little section just reminds us. Jesus' grace is far more easily rejected than any of us can expect. The ability to reject Jesus and his grace is so easy to do. Look at, these Pharisees are non-believers, non-Christians. And the thing they ask, give us a sign. He just fed the multitudes. He just cast out another demon. He just brought sight to this guy. Add it to his list. Add it to his resume. The Pharisees are aware of this. His fame is spreading. We keep seeing that happen. Everything he's done is on display for everyone to know. And the Pharisees come and say, yeah, give us another one. And then we'll believe. So non-Christians in the room, here's just what I take from this. All you ever need is one excuse to stay a non-Christian. That's it. Just one. You've got to have one reason why God isn't God, Jesus isn't who he says he is, and you're not going to follow. These guys say, I need one more sign. Jesus leaves. What's it today? I, I can't, can't get down with the Christian message. There's too many hypocrites in the church. 
There's your excuse. That'll keep you from Christ as long as you want it to. I don't know, the church seems a little backward and, you know, the, we're progressing, we're moving towards more modern ways of thinking, there's a new kind of sexual ethic. I can't get with a church that, that is so backwards in their thinking. There's your excuse. You hold on to that excuse with all you got, just like the Pharisees. Whatever it is about Christianity, all you need is one to justify in your own heart why you're not going to accept Christ. That's it. Here's what Romans, which is another book in the Bible, says about the heart of an unbeliever. God created everything perfect. He created this world full of good stuff. And the non-believing heart uses this stuff of this world and serves and worships this world and forgets the creator of it. That's what's happening. It's a moral dilemma going on. Pastor, I love Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York. But he says a lot of times he'll kind of have lunch with folks who have gone off to college. They come back, he's like, hey, let's have lunch. And a lot of times they're no longer believers. They've left the faith. And they've got a good reason for it. Well, Tim, let me just tell you what I've learned. Science has proven such and such author, fill in the blank with whatever smart thing you can say about why Christianity should be rejected. And Tim Keller says, I've learned to ask one question in those conversations. Who are you sleeping with? Every time. Their hearts have gone after what they wanted. Morally, they have left God. They want to do what they want to do. They know they're wrong. They know they're in the wrong. And the thing they got to do is justify in their head, how do I get out of this? Oh, I'll start to grab onto these intellectual arguments against Christ. Boom, that's my argument. Tim, here's why I'm not a Christian. No, it's not. Your heart is wicked. Happy Father's Day, non-Christian dads in the room. Here's what's crazy, though. This is not a non-believer specific issue. The ability to forget grace and look at God coming to earth and giving us everything we'd ever want, unmerited, is not something that only non-believers reject. Christians have a lifestyle of rejecting this. Let's read what he says to the, the disciples here. Verse 14. He says, now they had forgotten to bring bread. So now they're leaving. The disciples are realizing, oh, I forgot bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus takes this as a teaching moment. You're distracted. You're worried about what the world's worried about. I get it. We got to eat. Verse 15, he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What's he saying there? What you just saw with the Pharisees isn't unique to non-believers. They've got a religious way to interact with God. And then he brings in Herod. Who's Herod? If the Pharisees were the religious way to react to God and to go after God, do right, do good, read your Bible, blah, 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 Herod was your way to kind of compromise and get the best of all the world. So you get a little religion, I go to church, I get what I want on my weekends, you kind of combine all these things and you've got this compromise. So you're either really strictly religious and you're a do-gooder for God, or you play all your cards right and you get to compromise and that's how you're going to interact in this world. He's saying, watch out for those two systems of thought. Watch out. You guys are believers. You've seen everything I've done. You are going to be my foundation to my church. Watch out for those. Watch out for losing sight of grace. Pharisees lose grace because they think they can work their way to God. And these guys think this world and all its enticements is everything it's cracked up to be. So they lose sight of grace. We lose sight of grace. That's the fundamental issue with Christianity. Dale Thacker is our counseling pastor. Whatever issue you have, he's going to do a great job with you. But I'll tell you the two things he'll go back to. Jesus and grace. 
Jesus, grace. Jesus, grace. Jesus is really God and he's really good and grace is you really don't deserve him but he is willing to give you everything. And that's what he hammers on because it's true. And Jesus knows that. He's like, beware of trying to lose sight of my grace. You just saw how good I was to these people and you're gonna go back to a religious way of thinking. How does he know this is true? What does Peter do? Fast forward 10 years. He's in the church and his Jewish friends are over here and his Gentile friends over here and he starts to go back to being Jewish and religious and following these rules and he has to get called out by Paul. Our hearts drift from grace. Can't be that easy. I've got to do something. That's just the way it is. We just had VBS here. Our oldest went to VBS. He learned the gospel. God is good. All these songs and all these hand motions and all these CDs we got to listen to in the van now. He learned it all. God's good. We're sinners. We all fall down. He learned it all. He knows the gospel. We drive seven minutes to Ellsworth and Baseline to Peter Piper, and we put some tokens in his hand, and he forgets it all. (laughs) And sin just abounds. We forget grace. We forget it. Jesus goes on to the little tirade there. He's like, are you guys kidding me? You're talking about bread? How many loaves did I take to feed those guys? Six loaves and I took care of 4,000? Seven loaves I took? Bread's not the, I will take care of you. And not because of anything you bring to me, but because I'm good. What's your worries right now? Finances? Some sort of health problem? Some sort of relationship strain? What is it? Jesus says, my grace is enough. He gives us pictures here in his word. He's enough. I want to just end. I want to go back to that woman who Jesus called a dog and just see what she gets. She is unique in this story. The disciples never understand parables. Jesus tells parables and then he has to go and explain to them what parables are. Non-believers never get parables. Jesus speaks to this woman in a parable and immediately she gets it. And if you read this this, uh, situation in Matthew, she says... When she interacts with Jesus, Jesus says, your faith is great. Only two people get that commendation from Jesus, this woman and another. So she has great faith, and she's the only one who gets a parable right away. What is it that this woman gets about grace that we miss, that my boy misses as we leave VBS, that I miss, that I can spot the sin in my son so easy, and I cannot, for the life of me, figure out anything wrong with me, because I've got this thing nailed. Let's just read it one more time. Unpack it and pray out of here. Verse 27, he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus is saying, it's the Jewish time for my ministry here on earth. That's all he's saying. It's not that offensive. The word for dog there is like a little pet dog that hangs out under your table and gets your food. He's saying, right now at the table are the Jews. I'm pouring myself into them. They're going to go to you Gentiles eventually. What does she appeal to? In that moment, she can say, but I did all this work to get here. I banged on your door. I walked 50 miles to get here. Works. Look at what I've done for you, Jesus. Look how far I've come for you. Look how far I've come from my old way of life to now. She does not appeal to anything she brings to the table. Verse 28. She answered, yes, Lord. She agrees with him. I get your parable. Yet even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. Here's what's unique about this woman. And what we forget and I forget all the time. In her interaction with God, she appeals to his grace and his grace alone. I know, God, 
You've got a plan, the Jews first and then the Gentile, and your gospel is so good and so wonderful that even if you just drop a crumb my way, I know my life will be great. She says nothing about what she brings to the table. She appeals to God and his grace and his grace alone. That's it. That's it. Non-Christian in the room. It's Father's Day. The greatest thing that ever happened in my life was my dad became a Christian. Here's what's crazy about my dad. He taught me everything wrong about this world. He taught me how to cuss. I learned some great cuss words from him. He taught me how to look at women inappropriately. He taught me how to live this life like a good old boy. And his life started to fall apart. And some guy came to him with this crazy message from a Jewish guy who says, he will restore your life fully. Well, what do I have to, what do I have to give him? What do I got to bring? Nothing. That's crazy. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I know. It's called grace. And my dad, because of God's grace, said, I bring nothing like this woman. And I know there's nothing I could give you that would make you wink at me or smile at me or give me anything I bring nothing, but your word says if I come humbly, you will respond, just like this woman. He did. He's a Christian. That's how Christianity works. Non-believer, if you want to be a Christian, you come like this woman, and you say, all I bring is sin, and the stuff that I thought was good was probably more tainted with wrong motivations than I even know. What do you offer me, Jesus? Everything. Sit at the table. You're now my child. That's the gospel. And Christians, we're going to leave here and forget it. But just remember, grace, God's unmerited favor towards you, is the interaction God has with you in every moment of your life. You never deserve it. He's always enough. That's always true all the time. We forget. Jesus says, watch out. Keep remembering grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I don't deserve you, and yet... I think I do, even as a Christian who knows grace and reads about grace and sings about grace and teaches about grace, my default heart goes towards religion. And I want my kids to turn out great because you look at me and think I'm a great dad. And I want my finances to be blessed because you see me as a good steward. And I want so much of my life to be blessed because I bring something to the table. And God, your blessing like in the story with this woman, is undeserved. We're dogs under the table who don't deserve it, and you feed us, and you bring us to the table as your children, and you lavish us with your grace. God, help us. Help us Christians to remember this a little more today. It's your grace, God. We don't deserve it, and yet you're enough for us. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.